Hi, Nicola. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Alicia. Thanks for inviting me. How are things over in New Zealand? Uh, look, to be honest, they're, um, oh, I hate to say it considering um, <laughs> what's happening elsewhere in the world, but to be honest, they're quite normal. Uh, we've, right. well, the country has sort of come through COVID relatively unscathed and we live um, pretty much as we did uh, this time last year. So, you know, it's it's a nice place to be. And I do feel so um, oh heavy-hearted for the rest of the world because, you know, certainly heading into the holiday season when people want to be with family and, and many aren't able to. Um, and here we are over here making plans for, you know, family Christmases <laughs> and holidays. Um, so I, I would rather not delve too much into detail because it will probably just make people envious and a little <laughs> mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, sure. So I'm actually uh, located in the middle of the North Island of New Zealand. Uh, and for those who are from this part of the world, they may um, sort of recognize that as next to a very large lake called Lake Taupo. Um, but for those uh, who don't know the country, it's split into two islands. Um, the North Island is the most populated uh, full of small towns and where I grew up was on a farm about three and a half hours south of Auckland which is the largest city and I was there for about first eight and a half years of my life uh, so certainly not my entire childhood and then moved into a small town and then soon after university left New Zealand and was overseas for 20 years um, and what I ate is an interesting uh trip down memory lane because I grew up in the 1980s and it was a very bland uh, diet of mostly meat and vegetables and then I recall uh, a cookbook arriving on the scene uh, called the Woman's Weekly uh, Cookbook and all of a sudden there were spices in our diet uh, and recipes for things like spaghetti bolognese and um, a very mediocre uh, chili con carne served with corn chips and so that was sort of you know the meals that we looked forward to as kids because it was something different um, and I think anyone growing up in New Zealand or Australia will remember that but my um, I suppose my my fondest food memories uh, come from when I was in my 20s when I actually headed outside of New Zealand uh, and started to you know eat more broadly from cuisines around the world um, and that certainly was the case in Melbourne. Nice. Well, you identify as a farmer and are at work on a book about farming and food citizenship. I wanted to know how you define food citizenship. Um, I, I mean, that's an interesting question because I think just to to backpedal slightly, your sure. use of the word identify as farmer is something that I just want to dwell on for a minute first because it has <laughs> become a big topic of conversation for me of late, especially with other women working in the agriculture sector. So before I answer the second part, what is food citizenship to me, um, I think it's it's worth saying that I identify as a farmer as opposed to someone else or, you know, another title within that space uh, because it is a specific specific and purposeful um, uh, act to claim a voice in that space. Uh, as you might know, I think it's the same in the United States um, that the majority of people working the land or claiming the title of farmers tend to be of a certain ilk. 
And here in New Zealand, mm. that is uh, over the age of 60 or certainly over the age of 45, white and male. So to be a woman and to claim that title farmer is to have a voice in a space where um, the female perspective has largely been marginalised. And that's unfortunate because, you know, uh, historically and certainly in this current uh, day and age, women are disproportionately exposed to things like food insecurity. Um, you know, women are often at the forefront of um, climate change uh, impacts, especially when it has to do with the land and our ability to access good food and care for our families via um, food and things like that, or care for ourselves. Um, so that is why I claim the title farmer. And it, it tends to um, bemuse people here because it hasn't been considered something that has been contentious. Um, but I have had many conversations on Twitter and Instagram with other women who are purposefully entering into that space and claiming that title. Um, and then that leads on to you know what I'm thinking about when it comes to food citizenship. And it's actually a, a, a title or a, a concept that was introduced to me by a professor at Colorado State University. Um, his name is Michael Carolan. And he champions that as a term as opposed to, say, conscious consumer when it comes to uh, running a line of activism or action via your food choices. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, food impacts so many tenants of our life. Um, and to, you know, to say that we can shop our way to, for example, a healthier planet is to disregard a number of different ways in which food impacts people's lives, whether it be culturally or economically or um, through, you know, workplace experiences or justice. Um, and it also, you know, to run that idea of conscious consumerism, um, flags that some people have more dollars, therefore more votes. Um, and so the idea that food citizenship might be centred in the food debate is to say that people value different things within the foodscape um, and that there is no shame in that and there is no hierarchy as far as I'm concerned in what one values over another. Um, and so I'm interested in it from a New Zealand perspective because we are here starting to think very seriously about uh, ideas of food sovereignty, um, who has access to what, um, who has access to land, um, who are the farmers producing our food for for locals as opposed to food for commodity. Um, so it's it's been a, a point of fascination for me for about the last two years. And I'm just slowly, you know, starting to unpack it from a local perspective. Um, but that's what I understand it um, to mean from a, I suppose, an academic point of view. Um, and certainly the work of Professor Carolan is that it, it is simply um, an acknowledgement that food is many things to many people. But to be an active participant in the foodscape is to do more than shop. Right, right, right. And, and as you mentioned, you live in New Zealand. And I actually got a press release today about visiting Auckland in 2021 as it is a culinary and cocktail, you know, I don't know, great travel destination. That's that's what the landed in my inbox today, which was really funny because I was going to talk to you. And, you know, uh, to people around the world, I think, especially those of us with more progressive politics, you know, we look at New Zealand, we look at how you've weathered the pandemic and we're like, mm. wow, why can't we be like that? <laughs> and mm. so I wanted to ask, you know, how does that, as you were just talking about, how is that manifesting in local food politics? You know, is that mm. a real 
is that global perception off of New Zealand? You know, how how would you like to see food politics there evolve, if, if at all? Mm. This is such a big question, and it's so topical here I at know. the moment, um, especially in the wake of, you know, COVID, which has had an impact on New Zealanders, um, perhaps not to the extent of other um, countries, but it has impacted those who are on the you know, the cusp of food insecurity. Um, and I'll, I'll dive into that, but let's just backpedal. Okay, progressive politics mm-hmm. in New Zealand and how it's perceived mm-hmm. overseas is such a fascinating thing because we have a well-known Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, young woman, mother, um, charismatic leader who communicated her way and our way through COVID um, with much effectiveness. Um, and... That has translated very well internationally. The reality here, as is you know often the case with good communicators, yeah. is more nuanced, and uh, and it's not as rosy as perhaps um, those abroad would uh, perceive it to be. When it comes to food politics and our progressiveness, that definitely starts in agriculture here in New Zealand. Um, the primary industries are a huge earner for the New Zealand economy, which which basically means a huge number of uh, people are farming in some capacity in New Zealand, and a lot of land is used for agriculture, be it um, dairy, beef and sheep, forestry, uh, you know, growing fruit for export. Um, and throughout COVID, uh, the primary industries was highlighted as probably the key economic driver to get the country out of um, out of a potential recession. And the regulations that have come through the pipeline in the last couple of years from the progressive Labour government that we have now were initially seen as quite uh, confrontational to some of the farming sector um, who were not used were not used say that again we're not used to um, having their way of doing things challenged and what Labour is trying to do um, is to position New Zealand and New Zealand's agriculture as a legitimate clean green uh, industry uh, globally so there's a lot of regulations around water quality because the dairy industry has been culpable of a lot of pollution over the last decade to 15 years Um, and the water quality in rivers and streams is not great Um, they're looking very closely at, you know, uh, methane emissions, as is the world. Uh, But there's some interesting research happening here in New Zealand that really pushes this idea that um, if we're to tackle uh, agriculture's impact on global warming, that we need to take a really close look at what the gases do in different ways. So, you know, there are millions and millions of cows that dot the countryside in New Zealand. but they are a problem that can be solved in X way. And then we also need to look at fossil fuels, um, which is, you know, the same the world over. So it's not to bundle them all together and say that, you know, agriculture is the biggest emitter in New Zealand, which it, it is in terms of statistics, but it's to understand how we can actually get to zero emissions collectively across the board, because that is our progressive government's target is uh, zero um, emissions by 2030. And we're not doing a very good job of it yet. Um, we're trailing behind some of um, some of the European countries, but that's not to say we don't have good intent to get there. So that's the landscape in which we're working. And then 
the food that comes out of that agriculture sector, the majority gets exported. So this is a big um, point of contention in New Zealand. We produce the most amazing food, but the majority gets sold either as commodity or as high-end um, food into affluent markets in the north. And what's left for New Zealanders is still good quality produce, but it's expensive. So most uh, people will go to the supermarket and pay the same for New Zealand produce as they potentially would if you went to you know, a supermarket in Shanghai. So there's a, there's a real sense of um, uh, disparity uh, emerging and people are starting to get quite angry because there's fewer dollars around. Certainly this year, a lot of people have either lost jobs or lost hours. Um, and we're just simply not able to purchase the food that we're growing here in this country. So the push for this idea of food sovereignty is gaining a lot of momentum. Um, and the way that we're seeing it played out is small food producers are starting to just push aside the middlemen and get rid of this idea that we must produce for the commodity market and setting up structures where they can take their food straight to the people who need it. So that there's a big push from um, fisheries and small farms to go from farm straight to consumer and at a price point that makes it affordable. Um, and that's a, that's a big kind of middle finger to not only the government's push to, you know, increase commodity and high-end value food exports for the dollar, um, but also, you know, for conventional farming and conventional food systems. So that's probably the most interesting thing that's happening for me at the moment is a little bit of a political rumbling um, from a grassroots level where food producers are just saying we don't want to be part of this system anymore. It's not serving our, our people as it should. That's really interesting to me, especially because I'm on an island island colony that is also, you know, making these big grassroots push pushes towards food sovereignty that are really difficult, really challenging, especially because here being a colony, like not having control over wages, not having control over um, how how things are exported, how things are imported. And so I, I'm, I now want to take a, a deeper look at what's going on over there because that might be, you know, might have some, some interesting things that are applicable to the situation as well, because I, I think island, island nations probably have a lot more in common um, around this than, than maybe they think just because of so many cultural and political differences. Um, but you recently, you know, produced an audio series called A Carnivore's Crisis. And I wanted to know, you know, what was the inspiration for that, the background and how how did you make it all happen? Because it's really so expansive. Mm. Yeah, it was a big project. Um, it started uh, from a conversation that I had with my Australian husband, actually, who I dragged to New Zealand to farm with me, um, but also one of my closest <laughs> girlfriends who's a another producer and she's based in Sydney so she felt very strongly that I'd left her behind so we started talking about ways that we could work together and it was three years ago and I had made the decision with my husband to leave Sydney I worked in um in Australia for as I said almost 20 years with a a, a short stint in London in between and worked in the media over there and um held a number of senior uh, editorial positions towards the, the end of my stint in Australia and was with BuzzFeed for 
um, the final couple of years as managing editor. And I just was at the end of my tether. I was burnt out. You know, the hours were too long. The emotional, physical drain was just too much. And during that time, um, my husband and I uh, had our had a miscarriage so we lost our first baby and it's incidents like that or moments like that in one's life where I think um people take stock and and for me in the weeks and months after that um food took on a very peculiar and specific role and I used it to try and heal myself to to try and become not just physically strong but also um a little more emotionally um robust and it also just served a very uh, specific health purpose. I, you know, I cut out all of the things that I knew weren't feeding me um, and started eating in a way that would sort of build my immunity and resilience and all of that kind of stuff. And that started a conversation about, well, you know, do I need to get closer to my food source in order for me to really make a good go of this? And we had an opportunity through my father to work on a piece of land that he leased. And because, you know, things just weren't going that well for us in Sydney, we said yes. And so we we made this transition from, you know, working in central Sydney onto a rural property and trying to become farmers three years ago, right at the time where some of the... um, uh, big research reports were coming out from the likes of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the Eat Lancet Commission and Oxford University that were taking a really good hard look at what the global agricultural sector was um, doing to the land and to ecology and to diversity um, and the drain on resources. Um, and I'm, I'm sure for your listeners who are interested in the food space, that information won't be new. Um, But what jumped out at me from the media coverage off the back of that was how uh, focused it became on one tenant of the research, which was an increase in plant-based diets and a decrease in meat and dairy across the board for Western societies or Western countries um, would have the biggest impact. And yet within the the detail of the reports was a lot of regional nuance and a lot of... uh, findings and suggestions about how to best farm certain land in certain countries sustainably Um, and I didn't see that being reported and uh, I was curious about that because obviously we'd found ourselves uh, on (laughs) land farming cattle right at the time where cattle farmers had been um, pinpointed as environmental enemies and certainly degraders of the of the environment. Yet here in New Zealand, we operate a very different uh, farming system to what you know a lot of big uh, cattle ranches or feed lotters do in the United States or in Australia or in the EU. So that was the start of the the audio documentary series. These conversations about well, what is missing from this debate or from this conversation, and is the plant based diet the best course of action from an environmental point of view. And that was a very important thing for me to raise, that we were looking, or I was really concerned about the environmental impacts. Um, We didn't dive into the health implications or the moral or ethical implications of eating meat at that early stage. Um, I I was really focused on, you know, is the land going to be degraded by what we do here by running cattle? So that was the start of it. And then... We pitched to 
um, get some development money from the Australian uh, Documentary Conference, um, which I'd been involved with uh, in my previous job in Sydney. And we received a little bit of development money and then Audible, which is an Amazon subsidiary, um, uh, funded the commission and they were really interested to tell this story uh, or help tell this story. Um, And we're also interested in pushing it out to more of a, uh, I suppose, an international audience and as were we so we started thinking about well what's the other aspect of the conversation that we my production partner Naima Brown and I don't have like a lot of experience in and that was certainly the food and cooking space and so we started having conversation with a British chef named Rachel Koo who was at a point in her career um, where she wanted to dive into something a little I suppose a little more challenging for her audience maybe Um, she'd been fronting uh, TV shows and writing beautiful cookbooks and she was uh, now based in Sweden with two small children and she was also thinking about the environmental impact of her um, not only her family's uh, eating lifestyle but also the way that she was writing recipes for others excuse me and so that's that was the start of the conversation and so we just started developing it over the course of about six months. Um, we were fully funded by Audible. So we had, you know, obviously budget to travel and to hire crew. Um, and we divided up the, you know, the the storyline to basically try and canvas the export market and export touch points from New Zealand and Australia. So thinking about New Zealand and Australia as you know, ex-colonies uh, directing their food products up into the UK and what that meant from an environmental point of view now. And then looking at the west coast of the United States because a lot of um, uh, Australian and New Zealand beef end up in California. Um, but California also is the hotspot for some really interesting food tech and um, plant-based product lines coming out of um you know, the likes of companies such as Memphis Meats and, well, Memphis Meats is not to market yet with lab-grown meat, um, but Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers and some of the other interesting um, Silicon Valley uh, startups. So it was from the first conversation through to uh, when we locked off the documentary around 13 months of production. And then unfortunately, we were due to release the podcast right in the month where countries started to shut down due to COVID. Um, So our commissioners made the decision to hold the documentary through to August um, when it was initially slated for March. Um, And unfortunately, in that time, the foodscape completely, you know, changed, went into flux. Um, And it would have been nice to have added another couple of chapters or episodes into that storyline to take account for what was happening in, you know, the meat processing lines and, you know, what was happening with um, uh, food logistics and people's ability to actually access good, healthy food during COVID. Um, So, yes, that was how it sort of came together. Um, The details of it, I would encourage everyone to go listen, but I can can dive into that if you want want me to unpack that as well. Oh, no, they should listen to it. Um, But I wanted to hear, you know, what 
surprised you when you were creating this series, if anything? And, you know, did it change how you personally relate to meat or to these plant-based meat products that you were mentioning? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think the most surprising thing for me when I started having initial research conversations with people and trying to book talent or um, put together our production schedule, uh, there were, there was a lot of fear, which uh, surprised Mm -hmm. me enormously. Um, I had to work very hard to get people on microphone um, and to put the, them in a space or into a conversation with me or my fellow producer Naima where they felt comfortable to share detail and to be honest and truthful and I think that was a, a byproduct of um, and uh, these people were primarily coming out of the farming space um, but also food manufacturing cooks chefs um, I think that was a byproduct of, a, you know, two years of a lot of vitriolic conversation around diet choices and activism via food. So a lot of the farmers who we spoke to um, before we turned on the mic were very cautious with me and I was accused on a number of um, occasions of being a, a vegan spy or a vegan activist. <laughs> um, there was an assumption that I had an agenda um, and that goes both ways. I had a, we had a, a very um, <clears throat> long and involved interview conversation with uh, a UK food writer who I admire enormously, and and they ended up pulling out of the documentary um, because upon reflection they thought our agenda was pro meat and that we were working for the meat lobbyists, mm. which again is not true. Um, at all I may I may be a farmer um, but I'm also a journalist and I come from public broadcasting background which means you know a lot to me and so my sense of um, journalistic integrity is incredibly important and you know goes to my reputation and how I actually get work so that was a I was taken aback by that 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 they just said no we don't want anything to do with it and that, that just continued throughout the entire production process there were so many phone calls once we were in sight or, you know, I had a producer travel to um, a valley in the north of the UK and suddenly I had a dairy farmer on the phone to me saying, you know, you need to explain this all to me again. How can I trust you? Are you sure that this is, you know, that you don't have an agenda? And I was like, yes, yes, this is what we want to do. We just want to give a platform to people to share their experiences and their expertise and then try and craft a narrative out of those voices that offers a broad range of opinions. Um, So I think the end result for me, hearing all of those stories and how much um, discomfort and, and animosity has kind of driven the conversation over the last couple of years, um, led me to make a couple of decisions in my own life and in my own diet. Um, and that has been to spend a lot more time having more conversations to try and find a space where we can talk about food and the environment and farming's impact on the environment in a way that it doesn't descend to argument. Um, and 
my diet choices and the, the role that food and cooking plays within that is really important. Like, I, you know, I often have these conversations over a meal and that gesture of sharing food is often a way to um, uh, calm the space. And, you know, the, the consequence of me learning what I did throughout the course of the documentary um, has shifted my diet and that, you know, eating red meat is still part of it, but a minor part. And the reasons for that are very firmly um, focused on environmental impacts. I do believe that, that in the West we need to drastically reduce the amount of red meat consumption. Um, but that's not to say that it needs to disappear entirely because, you know, meat serves particular um, role or serves a particular role in a lot of people's uh, cultures and uh, diets for health reasons. Um, and when it, when it came to looking at some of the, you know, the replacement products or plant-based um, manufacturing that's going on, I have a lot of views on this, um, and the way in which corporate uh, or food manufacturers are peddling protein as opposed to actually producing good food. I just, I don't eat it. I wouldn't touch it. Um, I, you know, the majority of our weekly diet is either vegetarian or uh, plant-based, um, but there would, nothing would convince me to uh, purchase a, a plant-based burger patty. Um I think right. that they are doing uh, consumers a massive disservice with the products that they're producing. Why do you think that? Uh, because I, I, <clears throat> I think that corporate food um, or big mm. food especially has co-opted some very genuine attempts to try and um, make eating for the planet a little easier um, but the actual product that is being produced I'm a little skeptical over um, what the various isolates are, are doing um, from an environmental point of view but also for our health um, it's essentially baking recipes um, and you know given what I said earlier I made a conscious uh, decision to cut out processed foods from my diet um, for health mm -hmm. reasons um, you know the plant-based burger to me is is a processed food um and so it, it just doesn't serve a role or doesn't have a role to play in my diet um but what I am concerned mostly about from an environmental point of view is where those ingredients are coming from how they're farmed or how they're produced so if you you know there's a New Zealand um manufacturer that I visited uh, during the documentary and, and they make uh, high, you know, really good quality um, plant-based uh, sausages and burgers and the bulk of their, um, bulk of the ingredients comes from Europe and Canada and the Pacific Islands. So the Pacific Islands produce the coconut um, mm. uh, ingredients, which is great. It's good for the um, Pacific Islands economy. Canada is where a lot of the grains are coming from. Hemp is coming from uh, the EU. Um, and some of those ingredients like uh, pea, well, pea and pea isolates, um, mm -hmm. soy, corn, barley, wheat, the way that they are farmed in some of the big corporate farming spaces is as monocrops, um, and those monocrops might be rotated, but uh, 
you know, they're certainly not a diverse uh, farming system. Um, there's a lot of, typically a lot of inputs in terms of fertiliser um, in order to produce those crops over and over again in the same soil spaces. Uh, and to think that that is environmentally beneficial is concerning to me, knowing what I know now about um, the way in which soil has degraded over the past 40 years with the advent of conventional farming systems, not just in New Zealand, but the world over, and the increasing use of inputs, whether it be fertilisers or pesticides and herbicides. Um, so, you know, that's where the, the plant-based products are coming from. They're coming from big monocrops. So mm-hmm. I, I would just, me personally, I just would prefer to eat um, plants that are grown in vegetable gardens uh, locally as opposed to products that are processed and manufactured abroad. Right, right. No, I agree, obviously. <laughs> I like to hear other people's articulation of, of how this works. And obviously, you know so much more than me. So it's, it's nice to hear that um, in such depth. But for you, is, is cooking a political act? <clears throat> um, is cooking a political act? How would you describe political uh, or how would you define of, political? Because this is a question I ask. Right. This is a question I ask everyone, and I, I suppose it is a bit of a trick question in that in mm-hmm. the answer, one must be defining what political is for them. Um, I talked to Amanda <clears throat> Cohen, who's a chef in New York City earlier today, mm-hmm. and her immediate response was, yes, of course it is, because you know, food, what we buy has all these impacts on the environment, on um, on labor mm. and, you know, on our bodies, on health, and these things are regulated yeah. by governmental bodies, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's really a question that is about how you, you people personally define what politics means in their own lives or what politics means more yeah. broadly. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, the reason I push it back onto you, because I've been thinking a lot about that term of, you know, what There is a a phrase that's bandied around a lot at the moment, which is food is political. And it's just said as a throwaway without (laughs) people really die. Oh, completely. And I, and I think that the (laughs) ability to unpack that is so important, especially at the moment. So when I'm thinking about this idea of what food citizenship means, citizenship of course Mm -hmm. plays an essential role in the political space and in politics writ large. Um, and so for me, cooking is, I would say cooking is an act of citizenship for me. <clears throat> and what that, mm-hmm. what I mean to say by that is when I, when I cook, when I put together a meal, I'm actually thinking about a very small per- personal set of concerns, um, which I hold onto because the ripple on effect I think has a political consequence so when I say that food as I elaborated earlier played a particular role in my life um, when you know around my miscarriage but also around the birth of my first child um, my daughter and the thinking behind that was food is the basis of my my health and good health and I wanted to never have to enter the public um, health system or hospital system again as long as I could avoid it. Um, so many hours waiting. So, you know, the 
the, I didn't want to be a burden on an already overstretched health system, both here in New Zealand and in, and in Australia. So if I could do anything to avoid being in that space, I would. And, and so this, that has weighed heavily on me because food and certainly cheap food you know, there's a lot of research around this that people purchasing cheap food are basically just offsetting or um, offsetting might not be the right word, um, but pushing the burden onto a different part of our society. Um, so, you know, to eat a certain way is to potentially develop health um, concerns or health issues later on in life, um, but to spend time the alternative to spend time now if you can afford to or if the food that you have access to is at the right, right pr price point is to have less of a burden on the healthcare system. So that in itself for me is a political act, but it's also about citizenship and that I don't want to be a burden on a, on a system that's already stretched. Um, so I don't know if that's a particularly uh, useful answer, but there are a bunch of other ways in which cooking and food works in in our house in a similar way so it's also about knowledge sharing and trying to you know unpack the ways in which we cook um, for others um, as a gesture of community or friendship or culture you know when I say culture I mean you know acknowledging the past and current situation that colonialism has in New Zealand um, so when we serve meals, what are we serving? Are we, you know, paying attention to local ingredients and local is to say, um, you know, foods that can and should be grown here, not just, you know, local that happens to be tomatoes grown in glass houses down the road. Um, so it's a really complicated question and I'm not answering it particularly well, um, but I feel no, so why don't I <laughs> why don't I s summarize it in saying that yes cooking is absolutely political but it is deeply deeply personal in the politics that I um I live out uh because I I'm also aware that to have any kind of political s sway or influence um I need to live my words and that was part of the reason for leaving Sydney and coming to where I am now to farm and to, you know, to learn this stuff from the inside of the industry. Um, it's one thing to say I care about, um, you know, workers' rights and justice and I care about the soil and the environment and to not do anything about that. Um, so, yes, the answer is cooking is deeply, deeply political. But for me and I hope for many others out there, it is also incredibly um, small and personal in the way that, that that those politics are played out. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, your writing has been such a beacon for me this year, Alicia. So thank you for all your good work. Oh, oh thank you so much. That means so much. And uh, I love A Carnivore's Crisis and I can't wait for your book as well. Yes, me too. Need to finish that. So <laughs> yeah, me I too. That's the same thing it. I say when someone's like, "I can't wait for your book." Yeah, I'm like, "Oh, me yeah. too. Can't wait to read my own book." <laughs> yeah, the idea Thank of you. writing a book sounded great when it was, um, you know, just a, a concept, and then sitting down for the hours is has been the challenge.
Exactly, exactly. Yes. Well, thank you again. Well, good luck with yours. Have a great day. And happy holidays to you. Thank you. You too. You too.